0: Hey, everyone. You're about to hear one of our excellent episodes handpicked from the archives. Why? Because we believe in vacation time, and so do our members. After more than 10 years of perpetually verging on burnout, members voted to give me a French amount of time off each year, so I thank them for that and use this as an opportunity to urge you to agitate for better working conditions for yourself and across the board. Now, enjoy the fruits of our labor. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the one element of our government that, above all others, has contributed to the absolute dysfunction of our democracy. For a quick overview, the filibuster was never intended by the founders, always anti-democratic, often used for racist ends, and is now being abused at a rate never before seen. Clips today are from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, The Mehdi Hassan Show, Zerlina on MSNBC, Breaking the Sound Barrier with Amy Goodman, The Rachel Maddow Show, and our old friend
1: Nevada Senator Harry Reid. modern filibuster is nothing like the Jimmy Stewart version. It's become an overused tool of obstruction. And in practical terms, it essentially means that a simple majority of 51 votes isn't nearly enough to pass legislation. If you don't get 60 votes for a bill, it's dead, which means theoretically senators from the 21 least populated states representing just 11 percent of Americans could overrule everyone else, which seems pretty extreme. So, to quote everyone who's ever sat in a bathroom stall with a three-inch gap in the door, why on earth was it designed this way? <laughs> well, people, people often claim that it goes back to the founding of the country. It's an argument that runs like this.
2: You may wonder why the Senate has this 60 vote rule when it's a straight majority rule in the House. Well, the answer is that the uh, founders meant it that way. The Senate was designed to be the cooling saucer uh, where the two parties were forced to work together um, and hence that 60 vote threshold.
1: Okay, so there's a few things to know about that. And the first thing is that it is not true. There is nothing about a 60 vote threshold for legislation in the Constitution, uh, nothing about it in the Federalist Papers, nothing in Jefferson's private letters, and nothing skillfully wrapped by Alexander Hamilton to the delight of everyone within earshot. <laughs> In fact, some historians say the filibuster was created by mistake. And even then, the first one didn't take place until 1837. So it was categorically not part of the founder's original vision. It's like claiming the day Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he also sent the first dick pic. No, no, he didn't. That development came much later. Two weeks later. But, but she is actually right about that whole cooling saucer idea. That's a story that comes up constantly, and it goes like this.
3: The Senate was created to be a cooling saucer to the hot legislation that comes from the House.
4: It is
5: the
6: cooling saucer. We all know the story. The old metaphor George Washington used was, the House is the cup of coffee where the coffee is very hot. The Senate is the saucer that you pour the coffee into so it can cool the passions of the House. Okay,
1: first, never say cool like that ever again, ever But setting aside the argument that the Senate should be more deliberative than the House, you might be wondering, why on earth would someone pour coffee into a saucer? Well, in the 18th century, people apparently did exactly that. They would pour coffee out of their cup, into a saucer to let it cool, and then drink it directly from that. Which is clearly ridiculous, and it's honestly something I wish I'd never learned, because Thomas Jefferson seems like a towering historical figure, until you imagine him sipping out of a saucer (laughs) like a fucking cat. But but it is true that the founders wanted the Senate to be a counterweight to the House. They achieved that, though, by having fewer members who serve longer terms six years, not two, and until 1913, not having them directly elected by the people. So... If keeping the filibuster is not following the founders' wishes, why do we still have it? Well, some argue that it preserves the Senate's ability to be a bastion of debate, as this senator explained in 1952. The Senate of the United States is the last open forum in the world where the rights of all minorities uh, can be fully and freely and completely debated. And uh, while uh, I would never
7: and have never taken part in a filibuster... Neither would I take part in an effort which would uh, which would result in depriving any minority group in
1: this country from having their cause fully discussed and fully debated on the floor of the United States Senate. Okay, so first, the Senate's reputation as a haven of gentlemanly debate is at best overblown in the 1800s, senators pulled pistols on each other and at one point, a congressman used a metal-topped cane to beat Senator Charles Sumner nearly to death. So, feeling nostalgic for the golden age of the Senate is like feeling nostalgic for 90s indie films than actually watching Chasing Amy. Because, set aside the notion that any lesbian can be magically turned straight if the right guy comes along, what's extra offensive in hindsight is the idea that that guy would be Ben Affleck. But- But that that guy also touched on another major argument for the filibuster there, that it protects minority rights. Although it is worth noting that the minority whose rights have historically been protected by the filibuster are the political minority who've often used it to restrict the rights of racial minorities. The Senate's own website calls the filibuster particularly useful to southern senators who sought to block civil rights legislation, and it was used most notably by Senator Strong Thurmond. Just watch him announce his plans to try and kill the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by subjecting it to endless debate.
6: It will be the aim of our small band of southern senators to make certain that every facet of this legislation is discussed, considered, and expanded at great length, even indefinitely, if necessary.
1: Exactly. He just gave the game away there. He wanted to debate it indefinitely. His goal wasn't to consider every aspect of the bill, his goal was to kill it. He's like a five-year-old saying, I shall pull the legs off this bug so that every facet of it may be discussed and considered at great length. No, that little psycho just wants to watch a bug die. <laughs> and Furman knew just how obstructive a filibuster could be. In 1957, he stalled another civil rights bill by speaking for a still record 24 hours and 18 minutes straight, while, according to some accounts, he had his aide wait in the cloakroom with a pail so he could relieve himself while still keeping a foot on the Senate floor. And it's almost impressive to take a morally disgusting act and somehow make it physically disgusting, too. It's like if Hitler had delivered all his speeches while publicly clipping his toenails. Now, now modern filibusters actually no longer contain... The uh, David Blaine-esque feat of endurance element, and that is because in the 70s, in the interests of efficiency, senators agreed to no longer require talking filibusters, you know, in the style of Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Mr. Thurmond goes to the bathroom in a bucket. <laughs> Instead, now, if you just signal your intent to filibuster and have 41 votes on your side, a bill is doomed.
4: The Senate was created to provide a counterbalance to the House, which was supposed to be the House was supposed to be sort of the direct uh, body that represented the people. And the Senate was always designed to provide sort of an elite counterweight um, and it was designed to be a little bit anti-democratic. Uh, in its inception, you know, the, in the House, apportionment is determined by population. So every district is about the same size uh, and every state has about the same number of House members proportional to their population. Um, so the bigger states have a lot more representatives. California has many more representatives in the House than, say, Wyoming, which has one representative. In the Senate, every state gets equal representation. So Wyoming has two senators and California has two senators. California's population is about 39 million people. Wyoming's population is about 600,000 people. Uh, so by that, uh, uh, proportionate representation it actually creates uh, a disproportionate uh, voting power so so every citizen in Wyoming has uh, many more times the voting power than a citizen in California uh, this was something that the framers were aware of when they created it uh, but some of them decried it at the time and said this is a big problem uh, Madison who's often cited as the as the uh, chief framer and constructor of the Senate actually uh, uh, strongly opposed this kind of equal representation. And when I say equal, I mean the same number of senators. Uh, the way it plays out is actually, you know, dramatically unequal representation for the actual voters. Um, Madison at the time uh, said that it would be a great source of, he used the word, injustice to give states equal representation. Uh, at the time that he called this an injustice, the biggest state was Virginia, uh, and it was about 10 times as big as the smallest state, Delaware. Delaware. Uh, Madison was right that it creates an injustice, but that injustice is several orders of magnitude bigger now than at the time. Uh, You know, Virginia was 10 times the size of Delaware in in 1789. Today, California is about 70 times the size of of Wyoming. So uh, it is it is an unequal body.
8: 70 Uh, times the size. And for people who listen to this globally, each of them, because they're each a state, have two senators, have equal representation in the Senate.
4: That's right. And because a lot of and, you know, the way this plays out is that uh, what that translates to is not just disproportionate representation geographically, but disproportionate representation uh, in terms of racial, ethnic uh, minority voting power. Uh, California, obviously, is an incredibly diverse state. Wyoming is an incredibly monolithic state demographically. Uh, But Wyoming has equal voting power to California. And this continues uh, throughout, if you go down the chamber, because the general pattern is that the more rural states, the lower population states tend to be overwhelmingly white. And so uh, what that translates to in our modern era is a dramatically disproportionate amount of voting power to white conservatives in America.
8: So take this to the history of the filibuster. I want to play just a clip of President Obama speaking about the filibuster at the funeral of the late Georgia Congress member John Lewis. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. Another Jim Crow relic, says Obama. You take this back, Adam, to slavery.
4: That's right. And Obama is 100 percent right. He's been consistent on the filibuster. He's always wanted to get rid of it in his new memoir. He says he wishes he had started his first administration by rallying Democrats to get rid of it so that he could have passed uh, more and bigger things. Um, But yes, he's absolutely right about the history. Uh, The history, um, you know, it's important to, to understand that the framers for all their, uh, you know, their own, uh, racism and, and slaveholding, uh, status, um, even they did not want the filibuster to exist. Uh, when they created the Senate, it was, uh, an institution that had no filibuster, uh, power. Um, it was designed to be a majority rule body. Uh, it was, um, designed to d- discourage obstruction. Um, They were very clear about this. This wasn't just sort of a a coincidence or or sort of a gray area. Um, The reason they were clear about it was that they created the Constitution in the shadows of the Articles of Confederation. And the widespread view at the time was that the reason the Articles of Confederation failed was that its Congress required a supermajority threshold to pass most major legislation. And so the framers saw that that had been a disaster and they, they created a Senate that was majority rule. And they wrote very clearly in the Federalist Papers in their own correspondence and other sources that they believed that a minority, a n- numerical minority in the Senate should not be given the power to obstruct what the majority wanted to do. By all means, the Senate was supposed to be deliberative. It was supposed to be thoughtful. It was supposed to take things a little slower than the House. But there was a certain point in which debate was considered to have, you know, run its course. And at that point, a majority was allowed to end debate, bring the bill up for a vote and pass or fail it on a majority vote. What happened was uh, over the course of several decades, after all the framers had passed away, um, others, other senators did use, you know, some obstructive t- tactics over the uh, early decades, but it was very rare Um, John C. Calhoun came along, uh, the great nullifier, senator from South Carolina, uh, sort of a grandfather of the Confederacy, and he innovated some of the tactics that became known as the modern filibuster. And he did it for the express purpose of increasing the power of the slaveholding class. What he saw at this time, this was around the 1830s and 1840s, was that slaveholders and slave states were becoming steadily outpowered in Congress and so he knew that if majority rule was allowed to continue, slavery was going to end and he needed, he felt it, a, a very compelling desire uh, from his perspective to increase their power in the Senate. And so what he did was innovate what we would describe as the modern talking filibuster, the sort of Jimmy Stewart style, um, holding the floor, uh, joining with allies to delay a bill that he opposed, and at the same time doing it all in the service of this lofty principle of minority rights, uh, and what he, uh, the minority that he sought to protect, uh, was not a vulnerable population by any means. It was the planter class, the slaveholders, uh, and so that was the origin of this of this uh, essential principle of minority rights being tied to the filibuster. It was a desire to protect not a vulnerable minority, but the minority of the planter class against the march of progress that Calhoun thought would progress uh, under a majority rule system.
8: So take that to today and this battle over Mm -hmm. the filibuster in the Senate, the trajectory you see from slavery to Jim Crow to the new Biden administration and the Democratic majority and what they're trying to do, whether we're talking about COVID relief um, or uh, talking, for example, about impeachment.
4: Sure. So, So the key development in the history of the filibuster from the time of Calhoun to now, is the uh, trans- transition from it, this talking filibuster, the you know the, the Jimmy Stewart style holding the floor, uh, into? a supermajority threshold that can be applied to block any bill. Uh, and just to underscore, you know, for the first 200 years of its existence or so, uh, the Senate was majority rule. Uh, even as the filibuster started to develop in Calhoun's time, all that senators could do was delay a bill. They had they had to talk on the floor, and eventually they had to give up. Uh, they were, There was no ability to impose a supermajority threshold. That didn't arise until after 1917 when the Senate put a rule on the books that, ironically, was designed to end filibuster. Uh, It implemented a super party threshold that under the principle that after a debate had gone on for long enough, uh, two thirds of the body would be able to come together and say, you know what, this this is enough. Let's cut this off. Let's move to a final debate, a final vote on the bill. Um, It took a long time for this to happen. But Southern senators uh, in the Jim Crow era, and this gets back to what President Obama was talking about, started to reverse the purpose of that rule. And instead of using it to end debate, as it had been designed to do, started using it as a higher threshold for civil rights bills to have to clear. Uh, and it's important to underscore how uh, transformative the power of racism was in this evolution.
8: Adam Gentelson, if you could end by talking about what this means for the COVID relief bill, who gets helped and who doesn't.
4: Sure. So what Sanders uh, has done is accurately identify a process called budget reconciliation that is an end run around this supermajority threshold that I was describing. Uh, that threshold has gone from the Jim Crow era from being only applied to civil rights bills to today being applied to every bill. And this is the primary source of gridlock in the Senate. Uh, as the budget chair, Sanders can use reconciliation to go around it. Uh, that can be used for the covid relief bill. He's absolutely right about that. Uh, that may be where we go. It will enable us to pass covid relief over Uh, the objections of Republicans and not have to clear a 60 vote threshold. Um, Long term, though, the filibuster will rear its head because anything uh, involving civil rights, democracy reforms, or those types of uh, reforms cannot go through reconciliation. Reconciliation is a restrictive process that has tight rules. Uh, They have to be budgetary items to conform with its rules. So ultimately, we're going to have to face this question of the filibuster if we want to do things like D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, any kind of civil rights expansions, uh, automatic voter registration, all of that stuff can't go through reconciliation. If we don't reform the filibuster, it will die by the filibuster. Uh, so that's where this, this issue will really come to a head for Democrats.
9: We, you know, mentioned early uh, up front here that, um, uh, that, that gun control has, uh, has moved to the forefront again of the national conversation. Um, The reason why it is unlikely to pass, uh, or at one of them, but the probably one of the biggest ones, at least before you can even have a conversation is uh, because of the filibuster. And uh, yesterday, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, reiterated his threat to Democrats if they and we should make it clear the filibuster is gone for judicial nominees both supreme court and federal judicial those were two different steps the filibuster is gone for nominees um of cabinet secretary of senate uh, of positions in the administration requiring senate confirmation that's gone all those things have been rolled back by democrats and republicans over the past uh, ten or so years, essentially because Republicans were so relentless in obstruction, uh, and now Mitch McConnell, you'll remember, Mitch McConnell is the one who prevented a a Supreme Court um, nominee from getting a hearing because it was only a year out from an election, is claiming that if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster for legislation, he's going to go scorched earth and. I, I think in part I think there's a strategy of why he came out and said this blatantly false assertion uh about the filibuster yesterday. Uh this is Mitch McConnell on Capitol Hill.
10: Buster is not rooted in racism. Historians differ on this. Are you concerned about the perception? If it is used against advancing voting rights, certainly the public perception is that Republicans are going to use this tool to make it harder for black people to
3: vote. Yeah, Actually, historians do not agree. It has no racial history at all. None. So there's no dispute among historians uh, about that. I make no apologies for opposing this bill. You've heard Senator Blunt outline the various flaws involved in it. Uh, This is all about a power grab. If it were related to civil rights, why were the Democrats using the tool last year and the year before that and the last six years? Why is it all of a sudden a civil rights issue when it wasn't for them as recently as last year? honestly, with all due respect, that is nonsense. This is a power grab. It's all about trying to take over the American election system. It has all kinds of flaws. And under Senator Blunt's leadership, we're going to begin to point them out in great detail, starting tomorrow in the Rules Committee.
9: Now they're talking about HR one or now introduced in the Senate as S one. This is a voting rights bill. It also has anti-corruption measures too, um, in terms of our elections and in terms of transparency for uh, donations, but it, it is just simply a fact that the filibuster, particularly it has changed over the past 20 years because, um, McConnell started to deploy it in every circumstance possible, imaginable. But for the first i don't know 50 60 years in the existence of the filibuster it was deployed primarily for uh to stop the expansion of of or i should say i mean the expansion of rights for uh for uh black people and uh, voting rights for people in this country uh but really just sort of like the the creation of parity of rights to some degree
2: Yeah. And it was it was deployed so sparsely and only really specifically for the purpose of blocking civil rights legislation that northern Democrats at the time or northern liberals kind of just allowed the uh, southern racists to use it because um, they wanted to kind of throw them a bone for other legislative priorities like the New Deal back in the day to get through um, I mean, it, it was there's a quote Adam Jentleson, uh took from Senator Richard Russell in 1949, where he basically admitted that this was really about blocking civil rights legislation. So there's no real differing historical data on this. The proof is in the pudding. This was how things worked back when the filibuster was being utilized decades before. He's trying to money the waters, McConnell, now. And frankly, I actually think it's one of the best strategies he's deployed since he's now become the minority leader, because now the conversation is about racism and regular people who aren't paying attention to the historical context might go, wait, yeah, they were using it back during when the Republicans were in power. How are they turning around and calling the Republicans racist when obviously, you know, there have been many Democrats even when the Republicans were in power who were saying once we are... In the majority, we need to do, do filibuster reform.
9: I, I, I agree. Uh, I agree. And even to add to that, that it, it, is, it is one, it, it sort of muddies the water uh, about the the, the, the the racist quality. But it also, look, during the years of Trump and Obama, all of our politics got highly racialized on both sides. And by uh, making this about the notion that, uh, Democrats are, are, you know, ostensibly calling them racist because of the, you know, around the filibuster, as opposed to the fact that, like, we know their voter suppression techniques focus primarily on communities of uh, color, particularly black people, because they know their, the, the ratio, uh, the, the, the relationship between being black and being democratic is, you know, um, uh, you know, nine to 10, essentially maybe a little bit more they can um uh that is they will target minority districts black districts and they know if they can suppress the votes there they are going to uh, help themselves. So yes, I agree. It's it's an it's a way of racializing this issue, which it is uh, racial. But it's a way for them to use a clarion call and get their folks uh, in support of of not getting rid of the filibuster. Frankly, I don't think it's going to work. People don't care about the filibuster. Period. End of story. They care about legislation that's passed, and none of them want to own a lot of these things that they vote for or against, particularly against.
4: mcconnell spoke in the senate this afternoon have a listen to what he said
3: 20 years ago there was no talk none whatsoever of tearing down long-standing minority rights on legislation the legislative filibuster is a crucial part of the senate leading democrats like president biden himself have long defended it
4: And like Nostradamus, just yesterday in the New York Times, you wrote McConnell will run the same playbook on Mr. Biden that he ran on President Barack Obama, come up with excuses not to work with the president that will sound lofty and politically valid. This morning, you tweeted out that column saying the framers didn't come up with the filibuster because they saw McConnell coming. Unpack that a bit for us. What the founders were concerned with, the framers were concerned with was uh Allowing a minority, they described it as a pertinacious minority in one of the Federalist Papers to block, uh, the will of the majority. Um, they were preoccupied with this because they had just seen what happened when you allow a minority to block a majority. Uh, you know, as you know, we're taught in school, uh, uh, the founders were writing the Constitution after the failure of the Articles of Confederation. And the reason the Articles of Confederation failed was but because it required the Continental Congress to have a supermajority threshold for most major legislation. And so the framers had direct firsthand experience with what a government looks like when you require a supermajority threshold. Uh, Alexander Hamilton in, in Federalist yep. 22 wrote that what may, might seem like uh, a good the quotes escaping me now, but uh, what might uh, what might seem like a remedy is in reality a poison. Um, you know, there's this intuitive sense that a supermajority threshold uh, will will facilitate bipartisan cooperation. What it really does, and what the framers saw in their own time, was that what it really does is allow the minority to throw a monkey wrench into the system for political gain and block the yep. majority uh, from doing anything and make them look bad. So you know, it took nearly 200 years. For this, uh, for the Senate to evolve, it didn't have the filibuster uh, when when it was first invented. Um, it took 200 years for it to grow into this tool that we see today, where it can be used against nearly any bill that comes to the floor and require a supermajority threshold. But that's what's happened. Uh, and then, you know, what the result of that is exactly what the framers predicted, which is that a pertinacious minority led by Mitch McConnell uh, can block and embarrass the administration and do it for narrow political gains, not for the interests of bipartisanship or getting things yeah. done.
10: It used to be senators actually had to stand up and speak on the floor and speak if they wanted to hold up legislation. That meant setting up cots in their offices for long nights of debate. There you see Mitch McConnell doing just that during a filibuster against campaign spending reform back in 1988 when I was seven. It worked for McConnell back then. And it is back on the table now for Senate Democrats who have a lot, lot they want to get done. In recent weeks, the House has passed a really important pieces of legislation on everything from policing to gun reform, to voting rights. But with the filibuster in place, all of that seems doomed in the Senate. So yesterday, the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, Dick Durbin, came out in support of bringing back the talking filibuster.
6: The filibuster is still making a mockery of American democracy. The filibuster is still being misused by some senators to block legislation urgently needed and supported by a strong majority of the American people. This is what hitting legislative rock bottom looks like. If a senator insists on blocking the will of the Senate, he should at least pay the minimal price of being present. No more phoning it in. If the Senate retains the filibuster, we must change the rules so that any senator who wants to bring the government to a standstill endures at least some discomfort in the process.
10: And yes, that discomfort might include rolling out a cot in your Senate office, but it might also be the best way forward for Democrats and Congress now. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth of Kentucky. He is the chair of the House Budget Committee Thank you so much for being here tonight. Congressman, all of this talk about reforming or eliminating the filibuster seems to have gotten the attention of your home state senator, uh, Mr. Mitch McConnell. Uh, Here's what he had to say on the Senate floor today.
3: Nobody serving in this chamber can even begin, can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like. Everything that Democrat Senates did to Presidents Bush and Trump, everything the Republican Senate did to President Obama, would be child's play compared to the disaster that Democrats would create for their own priorities if, if they break the Senate.
10: That sounds like a threat. Uh, What's your reaction to that uh, statement from Senator McConnell today?
7: All right, I've known Mitch a long time, uh, many, many years. And Mitch is a man of few words. And when he speaks like that, you know one thing, he is scared to death. Uh, Ending the filibuster would be like his kryptonite. This is his Achilles heel. This is what he lives for is to wield the power of a minority. And nobody ever intended, uh, when, when the filibuster was created, nobody ever intended it to, be, to mean the rule of the minority. But that's what it's come to be. And, and as, as Mitch said, both sides have used it. Uh, unfortunately, the history of the filibuster is pretty sorted because it's been used far more often to uh, either, either uphold slavery back in the old days or, or prevent civil rights legislation from advancing in modern days it's basically been used as a partisan tool to stop the other side from getting victories and Uh, Again, the more Mitch screams, the more, you know, we, we think he protests too much. He is scared to death that we're going to do that. Because if we were to, in some way, end the filibuster or alter the filibuster, what we would do is pass legislation that would probably prevent Republicans, first of all, from ever having any control in Congress. And secondly, we would pass legislation that was so popular that the Republicans wouldn't know how to respond.
10: Well, one of the things that's interesting is that to think about in this moment is that the Republicans did not have a platform at their uh, convention in 2020. They held their convention partly at the White House, uh, starring Donald Trump and his family, uh, and they had absolutely no policy platform. So in terms of what the what Mitch McConnell is afraid of, is it in part that if they have to stand up there and say, filibuster uh, the voting rights bill, H.R. 1, they're going to have to come up with valid reasons to do that, and it will become very obvious that there really isn't any, any, anybody behind the curtain.
7: I think yeah, that's exactly right, Selena. Uh The Republicans don't stand for anything right now. The only thing they want to do is keep taxes low and then uh, keep their uh, keep the regulations uh, minimal. And that's not something that, that has anything to do really with the filibuster. Can you imagine if we were to pass the Voting Rights Act, uh, H.R. 1, and then the John Lewis Act, H.R. 4, and the, the, the background checks on gun purchases and the other things that are on the table right now, and then say the Republicans take uh, take control of the entire Congress, you think they're going to try to repeal that? Those things that would be <laughs> amazingly popular throughout the country? Of course they won't. So his threats are really em- uh, totally empty. There's uh, if I actually thought that the Republicans had an agenda that they wanted to advance that uh, would uh, would roll back civil rights, would uh, would make our, our economy less uh, equitable, uh, then I might worry if they if if the precedent were set that we eliminated the filibuster. But uh, that's really not realistic right now. The the reality is that uh, the the filibuster, which some people justify by saying, well, it promotes. It promotes bipartisan compromise. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody knows that's not true. It has not done that. It's basically right. been a tool for the minority to veto legislation.
10: So, going forward, do you think that uh, you know moderate senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? Do you think that they are persuadable? I mean, they sound in recent reports open to the idea of modifications to the filibuster, or maybe making it the talking filibuster again. Uh, specifically on legislation that deals with civil and voting rights. Do you agree that that should be done on those bills specifically, or or are you in favor of the talking filibuster for all pieces of legislation that come in front of the Senate?
7: You know, I, I'm, I, I'm totally in favor of abolishing the filibuster, but that's not gonna happen. I think there probably aren't enough Democratic votes to do that. But anything that, that puts the onus on the minority to sustain the opposition, rather than to just automatically uh, say, "Well, we don't—we have 41 votes, and 41 votes prevail," so the, the discussion goes nowhere, the bill goes nowhere. That's not going to—that—that's—that should not be the the operating principle. So, I I, I think uh, Senator Durbin was absolutely right. I think those who say, "If you want to, if you want to pro- pro- protect the," principle of extended debate, which I think is legitimate. And that's the way the filibuster started. It was, it was the idea that you wanted to guarantee the minority the opportunity to make their case. Uh, we ought to preserve that, that provision, but put the burden on the minority to, to do that and not just let them say, we, you don't have 60 votes, therefore the, therefore the minority prevails. And that's where we are right now.
9: Let's talk about what's going on with Joe Manchin, and and I think like your point that it's more like Veep than House of Cards. I think people really have to understand this. Like they they even in the White House and maybe even particularly in the White House, particularly with Joe Biden. And I want to get to sort of like a broader conversation about this with you. They're just they're just reacting to it's it's every day is just a series of reactions. What do you make of the op-ed that Joe Manchin? uh uh, you know published two days ago because it seems to me that he's just sort of done a 180 on his talking filibuster um if if, give me your sense of that and and why he might have done that
5: i mean i just think he he uh i think he doesn't this is a a nice way of putting it, but I think he either doesn't know where he actually stands. He's actually almost thinking out loud and doesn't actually have a set principle at play. And uh, so he's, I mean, that's a nice way of putting it A, a, a less charitable way of putting it is that He enjoys being at the center of of controversy. He's a narcissist. He's, I mean, John McCain, and and I'm not, you know, I don't want to stomp on his grave or whatever, but like John McCain was the same kind of way in the Senate. John McCain enjoyed the circus revolving around John McCain. Like you could argue that like John McCain had relatively a few clear principles and the principle was that John McCain had to be at the center of the controversy and so i think Joe Manchin is kind of leaning into being the guy that everything swirls around now what's kind of sad is that the only reason Joe Manchin is that guy is because he's a senator who's who, on the democratic side is willing to to play that role right i mean any individual democratic senator Could play the same role, granted, in a different way, but you can take that if 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 in a 50-50 Senate you need all of the Democratic senators for to, to, to pass something, then any single Democratic senator could kind of play this kind of game. Now, it's true that most of the senators say, at least publicly, the Democratic senators, that they want to reform uh, the filibuster. And so Joe Manchin is leveraging uh, his sort of situation to stay at the center of the controversy. And my guess is that part of that is he just likes being at the center of the controversy, right? I mean, like politicians enjoy attention. The the political system self-selects for people who enjoy attention. And then the other question is, is like, what is he leveraging that for? Like what, what actual power is he leveraging that for? And, you know, we, at the, at the daily poster, for instance, we reported on the, on the tax bill, uh, a related uh, situation, you know, why is he suddenly uh, saying he doesn't want, uh, the Biden proposed 28% corporate tax rate. Like, what is that really about? He he only, now he's sort of saying, first he was like, I, we, we, you know, originally he said, I want an infrastructure bill and I'm for raising the corporate tax rate. But now 28% is apparently some problem for him. He wants it at 25%, which seems unbelievably arbitrary, like the difference between 25% and 28%. So what's that really about? And that's when we reported and we followed the money that he's gotten a significant amount of campaign cash from a, a, a particular industry that bet big on the corporate tax rate. So this is a little convoluted, but hear me out. The private equity industry, the Wall Street guys, you know the Gordon Geckos of Wall Street. After Donald Trump's tax bill lowered the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21, a bunch of these big private equity firms bet big on the 21% corporate tax rate. They converted themselves to C corporations. Okay, to and that was a business bet on the 21% a tax rate. They were betting their businesses on that tax rate. They had previously been partnerships. That industry has given a lot of money to Joe Manchin. It's actually given a lot of money to the super PAC that also boosted Joe Manchin. Uh, So if Biden raises the corporate tax rate even to 28%, presumably, it's not good news for those Wall Street giants that bet big And cannot, by the way, revert back, right? They're locked in. They can't go back to being what they were. They're locked in to a a, a corporate structure that that is reliant on this corporate tax rate. So Joe Manchin is essentially going to bat in a very big way for some of the biggest private equity firms uh, in the world. And there's a kind of a sad irony, or maybe irony is not the right word, but like, here's a senator from one of the poorest states in the country who is... Effectively going to bat for the billionaires, for, like in a direct way. I'm not talking like like billionaires, sort of like metaphorically. I'm talking about like literally the moguls on Wall Street, right? The Gordon Geckos on Wall Street. The center of one of the poorest states in the country going to bat for these moguls not he's not like a New York senator or a Connecticut senator representing some of these guys in in Greenwich or or living in in Manhattan right he's going to bat for them to try to keep their tax rates low and so i think with manchin again i guess it's a long way of saying politics he likes being at the center of attention and always follow the money right the guy's got to raise a lot of money to run for reelection in in west virginia
9: that's i mean that's that that's fascinating and and i will say this i mean to be fair i mean I, 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 you know the the it shouldn't come as a surprise to people that po- politicians want to be in the center of things i mean and i you know uh, i l- look at what i'm doing for a living i I'm also you know i'm just literally sitting here in the center of of a of a set so i you know i i can understand that um that uh that um you know desire i guess and and some people it's uh, greater than others i used to work in show business and it's not hard to find people who want to be who who just That's their North Star. It's not even a conscious thing. It's just like if there's an opportunity, that's where they gravitate towards that. And uh, the tax thing is really fascinating because it it, it strikes me as like if Biden had said 31, Manchin would have said the real number is 28. (laughs) But but the point that you're making here, I wonder if because it feels like he reversed himself on the um, uh, on the filibuster and the interesting thing about with the filibuster gone if you're talking like the his sole uh, desire was to be that guy that leverage point um, getting rid of the filibuster would make him arguably and maybe Kristen cinema but i think you know mansion because he's coming from a state where you know that's the difference between let's say a joe lieberman and a joe Manchin. joe lieberman was coming from a blue state in connecticut and and we spent a lot of time talking about back in the day Manchin comes from a state that voted overwhelmingly for trump i mean so he he at least has some built-in narrative that could justify on some level but this guy could spend the next at least two years anyways or a year and a half to be the complete like whatever he wants uh joe manchin could get from the democratic caucus but there are times where i think like there are some politicians and i maybe there's all the politicians don't want to be that guy like they don't want to be in a position of making or breaking every piece of legislation that comes by because they're stuck between two different there maybe some big donors and maybe like uh one of the poorest states in the country like how do you justify these votes and maybe he doesn't want to take those votes well i mean i think it's, that's a good point
5: and i also think that there's sort of a i mean we're, we're sort of circling around this this idea that they're always trying to come up with ways to not be held responsible the parliamentarian oh it's not me it's the parliamentarian oh you know the filibuster. It's not me it's the filibuster and we, and we have to preserve this institution because of you know by the way the the, the nonsensical argument that the filibuster must be preserved to preserve minority rights, minority, and we're not talking about people of color, we're talking about like the minority of, of the population, is so absurd on so many levels. Because here's the thing, and, and this, is, this is like not in the conversation, which is to say that the Senate, by virtue of it being two senators per state, preserves significant power disproportionate power for the minority of the population in the country, because uh, even at 50 votes, there are are 50 Senate votes that can represent a minority of the country that can still block anything in a filibuster-free Senate. So the filibuster actually takes an undemocratic institution, inherently undemocratic, and makes it like insanely undemocratic. But the idea, you hear this all the time, but we have to preserve the filibuster in order to make sure that the Senate remains this special place where minority rights are disproportionately represented. But that's a lot of crap because a simple majority vote in, in, in with all the small states can still stop anything it wants in a 50-50 uh, vote situation. So you're right to ask the question, like, what is Manchin's real agenda? What does he get out of this? And by the way, and I'm not saying that there's a conspiracy here, but like, what does the Democratic caucus get out of pretending or saying that they want to end the filibuster, but having Joe Manchin, them being able to say, well, look, Joe Manchin represents a Republican state. He wants to look like he's bipartisan. We can't get rid of the filibuster. In other words, lots of people are actually benefiting from Joe Manchin trying to stop the end of the filibuster, the Democrat, even the Democrats who are able to issue press releases saying, "I want to get rid of the filibuster. I'm for X, Y, and Z," you know, preserving the filibuster still prevents them or or makes it easier for them to say, "Look, I, I said I was for you know this this and that good thing, but I just couldn't do it." Right? That, that's how politics perpetuates status quo.
0: Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism is to support the No Excuses Pack and West Virginia Can't Wait. Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema seem to be wearing their anti-progressive stances as a badge of honor. They should not feel this bold. They need pressure from their voters to change their tune, and as of right now, they have proved they both need to go. That's why the political action organization No Excuses PAC is working on the grassroots level in Arizona and West Virginia to find primary candidates to challenge both senators with someone who will actually fight for progressive change and do what needs to be done to make that happen. Like ending the filibuster. No Excuses Pack was founded by former staffers of Representative Ocasio-Cortez. They launched the organization in response to Manchin's objection to COVID relief checks, but they expanded their mission when Christian Cinema also rejected the $15 minimum wage and an end to the filibuster. Additionally, the organization West Virginia Can't Wait is working on the grassroots level in the state to build a people's movement. They have created a platform to rally around a new deal for West Virginia. The platform was developed after nearly 200 town halls and thousands of voter surveys, and it also includes ending mass incarceration and homelessness and forming a state bank and a workers' bill of rights. The organization hopes to inspire West Virginian voters to fight for the policies they want and to hold Manchin accountable. Both of these pressure campaigns can help reinforce to Manchin and Cinema that flexing their unearned power is not to their political advantage. In fact, it may prove to be the end of their careers if they don't change course. So visit NoExcusesPack.com and wvcantwait.com to get involved and support these efforts.
3: Do you see the breeze blowing? can you feel the winds have changed do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong cause it's time to make
8: a difference in this fickle world of change The Republican minority in the U.S. Senate seems firmly committed to deploying the filibuster to block all forthcoming Democratic legislation. The filibuster is not enshrined in the Constitution. It could be altered or eliminated through a simple majority vote of the Senate. As Republicans nationally ramp up an unprecedented attack on democracy, with at least 253 laws in 43 states at last count aimed at restricting voting rights, primarily targeting voters of color. And with the certainty of extreme gerrymandering forthcoming as Republican-controlled state legislatures coordinate partisan redistricting, the need to eliminate the filibuster has never been more urgent. The filibuster has long empowered white supremacists to protect and extend slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, and all their modern manifestations from voter suppression to mass incarceration. When Congress was founded, both the House and the Senate required only a simple majority to pass a bill. In 1805, Vice President Aaron Burr, while facing murder charges for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, suggested that the Senate remove its previous question rule, as it was almost never used. That minor edit created a fatal loophole in Senate procedures, ultimately allowing the minority party to obstruct progress by endlessly extending debate through what was later dubbed the filibuster. In 1841, South Carolina Senator John Calhoun, perhaps the fiercest defender of slavery in U.S. history, figured out he could rally his fellow slave state senators, a minority in the Senate— to grind proceedings to a standstill with long speeches and other procedural obstacles.
4: For the first two hundred years of its existence, or so, uh, the Senate was majority rule.
8: That's Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, speaking on the Democracy Now! News Hour.
4: Even as the filibuster started to develop in Calhoun's time. All that senators could do was delay a bill. They had they had to talk on the floor and eventually they had to give up.
8: That changed after World War One. Southern senators targeted anti-lynching laws, managing to block 200 attempts over the years to formally designate lynching as a federal crime. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul single handedly blocked passage of the Emmett Till anti-lynching law in June of 2020, even though the bill passed the House by a vote of 400 to 4. Southern Democratic Dixiecrats, led by South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond, also filibustered major civil rights legislation. Thurmond holds the record for filibustering, delaying passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act by speaking for 24 hours and 18 minutes. The 1964 Civil Rights Act was filibustered for close to 75 days before it finally passed. The filibuster has been used more and more to block not just civil rights legislation, but practically all progressive bills. As the filibuster is currently practiced, a senator does not need to hold the floor to stop a bill, but needs only to place a phone call to the Senate staff. Thus, a single senator has the power to secretly kill legislation, even a bill with overwhelming public support. Congressional Democrats hope to pass a slew of bills— the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to protect voting rights, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act bills to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and major infrastructure bills that will include elements of a Green New Deal to combat catastrophic climate change. Democratic Congress members Pramila Jayapal and Debbie Dingell have just introduced a Medicare for All bill, which amidst the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has growing support. None of these has a chance if the Senate filibuster stays in place. Democrats will need all 50 of their senators to change it. And currently, conservative Democrats Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have pledged to reject an outright ending of the filibuster. President Biden publicly supports a return to the talking filibuster, requiring senators intent on filibustering to actually hold the floor speaking without interruption. Manchin says he's open to that and presumably cinema could be convinced as well. Kentucky Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has pledged a scorched-earth response to any change in the filibuster. McConnell, like slavery's arch-defender John Calhoun 180 years ago, wields raw power with a ruthlessness almost unparalleled in U.S. Senate history. The filibuster has been a tool of white supremacists for far too long. A fleeting opportunity to end it has arrived. For the growing diverse majority in this country, it has become an intolerable impediment to progress and must end now.
0: Hey, members, we have reached that magic moment again where everyone else is getting kicked all the way to the end of the show, whereas you have more bonus content to enjoy. So, as always, thanks for your support.
11: One of the things that we're also expecting is an infrastructure bill. And infrastructure is one of those things that, in theory, Republicans and Democrats agree on. But in practice, what we will find is that Republicans are not going to vote for Anything that starts on the Democratic side and that seems to advance a a, a Biden, um, a, a Biden initiative. Um, that is something that they can do, avoiding the filibuster in some ways, using the budget reconciliation rules, the same rules they used to pass the COVID relief bill with just 50 Democratic votes. When that happens, is that going to actually delay progress or advance it? Because they are going to be able to get something done, likely, um, on infrastructure, which will be popular for the country and which will likely be expensive, um, using some, their, their sort of one last path around the filibuster without changing it.
4: Yeah, I I have uh, a few concerns about infrastructure and specifically doing it through reconciliation. Um, One concern is what you mentioned of the fact that, you know, if you get a lot done, maybe it sort of takes some of the steam out of reform. Um, I, I do think that probably less is going to get done through infrastructure than we think it's going to be. I think if you look at the experience of minimum wage and seeing that get struck from the first uh, reconciliation package, I think a lot of other priorities are going to go the way of infrastructure and people are going to think they're going to get passed, but that they're not going to because the parliamentarian is going to strike them. Um, but the other thing that's dangerous about infrastructure and doing it, shifting to it and doing it through reconciliation is that you could end up delaying any serious discussion over filibuster reform past the holidays. uh, Infrastructure, once you engage in it, will probably take you through the summer, potentially past Labor Day, uh, and you can quickly find yourself up against Thanksgiving before we're having a serious conversation about getting the filibuster reformed so that we can pass things like voting rights. So I think it would be wise for senators as we go through these next few weeks Uh, infrastructure won't be ready to be moved through reconciliation for a few more weeks. If there's going to be a period here where things will be coming up on the floor, I think it would be wise for senators to start thinking very seriously about whether or not we should just go ahead and do the reform now, because what are we waiting for? Uh, we don't need any further Mm. proof that Republicans are going to obstruct, assuming that they do obstruct these things. Uh, and you might as well just get it done and spend the next year and a half passing popular things, uh, that are good for America and that you can run on in 2022.
11: And that would allow all sorts of people to vote without undue interference uh, in the next election in 2022, if they can save voting rights that way.
6: The American people believe Congress is broken. The American people believe the Senate is broken. And I believe the American people are right. During this Congress, the 113th Congress, the United States has wasted an unprecedented amount of time on procedural hurdles and partisan obstruction. As a result, the work of this country goes undone. Congress should be passing legislation that strengthens our economy, protects American families. Instead, we're burning wasted hours and wasted days between filibusters. I could say, instead, we're burning wasted days and wasted weeks between filibusters. Even one of the Senate's most basic duties, confirmation of presidential nominees, has become completely unworkable. Mr. President, there has been unbelievable, unprecedented obstruction. For the first time in the history of our republic, republicans have routinely used the filibuster, to prevent President Obama from appointing an executive team or confirming judges. It's truly a troubling trend that Republicans are willing to block executive branch nominations even when they have no objection to the qualifications of the nominee. Instead, they block qualified executive branch nominees to circumvent the legislative process. They block qualified executive branch nominations to force wholesale changes to laws. They block qualified executive branch nominees to restructure entire executive branch departments. And they block qualified judicial nominees because they don't want President Obama to appoint any judges to certain courts. They need, the need for change is so, so very obvious. It's clearly visible. It's manifest we have to do something to change things. In the history of our country, Some 230-plus years, there have been 168 filibusters of executive and judicial nominations. Half of them have occurred during the Obama administration. Ms. President, 230-plus years. 50%. Four and a half years. 50%. Is there anything fair about that? These nominees deserve at least an up-or-down vote. Yes or no. But Republican filibusters deny them a fair vote, any vote and deny the president his team gridlock has consequences and they're terrible it's not only bad for President Obama bad for this body, the United States Senate it's bad for our country it's bad for our national security and bad for economic security that's why it's time to get the Senate working again not for the good of the current Democratic majority or some future Republican majority but for the good of the United States of America. It's time to change. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. Mr. President, at the beginning of this Congress, the Republican leader pledged that, and I quote, this Congress should be more bipartisan than the last Congress. Mr. President, we're told in Scripture. Let's take, for example, Old Testament, Book of Numbers. Promises, pledges, a vow, one must not break his word. In January, Republicans promised to work with the majority to process nominations in a timely manner by unanimous consent, except in extraordinary circumstances. Mr. President, exactly three weeks later, Republicans mounted a first in history filibuster of a highly qualified nominee for Secretary of Defense. Despite being a former Republican Senator, a decorated war hero, having saved his brother's life in Vietnam, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel's nomination was pending in the Senate for a record 34 days, more than three times the previous average of a Secretary of Defense. Remember, Mr. President, our country was at war. Republicans have blocked executive nominees like Secretary Hagel, not because they object to their qualifications, but simply because they seek to undermine the very government in which they were elected to serve. Take the nomination of Richard Cordray to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There was no doubt about his ability to do the job. But the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, went for more than two years without a leader because Republicans refused to accept the law of the land Because they wanted to roll back a law that protects consumers from the greed of Wall Street. So I say to my Republican colleagues, you don't have to like the laws of the land, but you do have to respect those laws and acknowledge them and abide by them.
9: From your perspective of having worked in, um, uh, in in some of those Senate offices and congressional offices, and, and frankly, governor offices as well, if I remember correctly, how much how much of that is the uh, like? How much of that plays into this? Right? Like that notion of like uh, I come from a blue state. There's an expectation that I would be to get rid of the filibuster, and I'm not, I have nobody in mind uh, here. Maybe Chuck Schumer. But uh but I have nobody in mind but uh, but uh, and I come from a blue state I got to there's much, there's so much pressure on me to be um to come out for that. Uh Joe's doing me a solid here. And down the road I'll do Joe a solid. And, and I, like I'm convinced that you know I don't know how many of those votes against the $15 minimum wage uh Sanders amendment um which incidentally needed 60 votes to pass anyways so they they all those uh democrats could have voted for the minimum wage amendment and it still wouldn't have been amended and but you ended up getting eight when really you know supposedly only two of them were on the fence about it although chris coons has some issue with like uh you know restaurants or something to that effect um How much of that was like, we're going to give cover to these guys because down the road, we're going to try and bring them into something else? Or how much, how conscious of of that is, is that dynamic?
5: My view is, is that a lot of it is what isn't done versus what is done. And by that, I mean that if Manchin is willing to go out there and singularly stop filibuster reform, there is, in my view, there are certainly rank-and-file Democratic senators who may not be all that upset with that, even though they're issuing press releases saying, I, I really want to get rid of the filibuster, and are subsequently not necessarily willing to use what power they have to make life uncomfortable for him. This is the part of the story that's really not discussed, which is that, yes, Joe Manchin is doing the Democratic Party a solid, if you will, by being a Democratic senator from a tough, uh, red-leaning state, right? I mean, so, so oh, you know, we have to be careful about how much we pressure Joe Manchin because Joe Manchin represents a, 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 a you know, a, a purple state. Well, the executive branch... As an example, has lots of power to discretionary power to decide where federal spending happens, where it doesn't happen. The uh, different chairpeople of the of the Senate uh, in the Senate of committees have lots of discretionary power to decide whether Joe Manchin gets X, Y, or Z that he's demanding. So mobilizing that power. Uh, to make it uncomfortable for Joe Manchin to continue being a problem on the filibuster, that's the part of the of this situation that, that's hard to see in real time, right? But that, but that, when we say, you know, are, are people going up to Joe Manchin and being like, "Hey, man, I'm really, I, I, I'm putting out press releases saying I'm against the fil- I'm for the for filibuster reform," but hey, thanks for doing that. It's, it's, it, I think it's more like Joe Manchin's going out there making filibuster reform impossible, and there's a bunch of Democrats who are like maybe in their own minds, they're like, look, I'm, th- th- I don't actually have a problem with what he's doing. He's like doing me a solid here. And so like, I'm not going to like, if I'm chairman of some committee, the appropriations, committee, I'm not going to like mess with his, his appropriation that he wants in West Virginia. I'm not going to like bring pressure to bear on him to actually move. And that goes all the way up to the white house. Right. I mean, when we talked about the minimum wage uh, situation, one of the things that we were writing about at the time was that any Democratic senator or, or any group of House members in a narrowly divided House could have said, listen, we're not supporting the American Rescue Plan unless it has a $15 minimum wage in here. Uh, we're going to be sort of an anti-Mansion, right? And the reason to do that is not to take down the bill the, because it was a must-pass bill. I don't believe it would have been taken down. The reason to do that is to actually mobilize the White House to use its power to create a deal to bring pressure on the other side of the party that you you need to actually mobilize the tools of pressure. Joe Biden as an example, I'm sure was like thrilled that he didn't have to actually really get off the sidelines on the $15 minimum wage, really get into the into the muck of like okay, I got the progressives over here going to take down my bill if it has 15. Mansion's like Saying he's gonna mess with the bill if it if it has any minimum wage increase. I gotta actually mobilize the tools of the White House to create an actual deal that puts something in here. I'm sure Biden was like, this is sweet. Like the progressives aren't threatening to take down the bill. I can just deal with Joe over here. I don't really I I don't have to like get into the mess of this. And and that's the way it's going to be until there is actually a a need for the White House. To actually mobilize those powers to actually push Joe Manchin. Now, will 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 it have a hundred percent success? Like, will it definitely move? Because you hear all the oh, you know, even if the White House tried to, th- this whole idea, of the president's powerless now. You know, like, oh, we oh. hear for four years Donald Trump's the most powerful person in the world. Now, uh, Joe Biden has no power. He can't do anything. He can't move. He can't move. It's that's a lot of garbage. Will it to, Will it be successful one hundred percent of the time? No. How? will it be successful sometimes? Yes.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with John Oliver on Last Week Tonight laying out the history of the filibuster. Democracy Now! also looked at the history and examined the talking filibuster reform proposal. The Majority Report discussed Mitch McConnell's threat in response to the idea of killing the filibuster. The Mehdi Hassan show compared the failed Articles of Confederation to the Senate under minority rule. It was pointed out on Zerlina that killing the filibuster is an existential threat to the current GOP because the Democrats would pass such sweeping and popular legislation that Republicans would have a hard time recovering. The Majority Report spoke with David Sirota about Joe Manchin's real motivations, and Amy Goodman on breaking the sound barrier made the final case to end the filibuster. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Rachel Maddow Show, which looked at the potential infrastructure legislation coming down the pike and its effects on the filibuster debate. There was a blast from the past with Nevada Senate Senator Harry Reid from way back in 2013 calling for an end to the filibuster, and the Majority Report followed up with more thoughts on Joe Manchin and other Democrats who benefit personally from the existence of the filibuster, even though they claim to be against it, because it allows them to avoid many uncomfortable votes that may make their donors upset. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, We'll hear from you.
12: Hi, Jay. It's Dave from Olympia. I am calling to wade into the conversation around population growth and a child tax credit. And so I'll just start out like this is mostly my issue, but Anytime someone brings up population, it gets my hackles up. It's not as bad as someone, you know, tells me there's this great Anne Rand quote that I need to read, but it's pretty bad. It's in 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 my experience, population growth is usually a dog whistle to talk about those brown people from those bad countries who are irresponsible and the cause of environmental degradation, and it's. Often, 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 I don't want to say always, but I struggle to find a counterexample, used to not talk about consumption, which is the other half. And I would argue the other 75% of that equation around environmental degradation. I don't think rich falls into that trap. I'm just saying that if you want to pick an argument, mention population growth. I'm probably going to argue with you. Ultimately, I didn't find his points convincing. Right. So, if the child tax credit is $300 a month, and it's not really, but we'll use that number, um, we have to believe that there's this cohort of people who really want kids, but they just can't afford it. But $300 a month—that's like that's going to make the difference, and they're all going to have kids, and we're going to see this, you know, boost. In population growth and if you believe that an increase in the minimum wage from 725 the current federal minimum to $15 so for one full-time laborer that would be an increase of a thousand and three hundred dollars per month before taxes if we believe there's all these people that want to have kids but just a little bit of money is gonna cause them to have kids why are we increasing the minimum wage? It wasn't a coherent argument for me. Look, I thought your response was very comprehensive, so I didn't call in. Rick called back in in episode 1608 and clarified some thoughts, and I appreciated what he said. Again, his point that the tax credit is discriminatory because it values parents over non-parents. And again, this is probably me, but this is a hot button because it, it parrots that... New liberal propaganda that there's no such thing as society, right? If we were all truly individuals and there weren't any network effects, like maybe there's a point there that this would be valuing parents over non-parents. But we do live in a society, right? There are real benefits for non-parents to have children be well cared for. And it's not just the moral win of not damning children to poverty. Giving the next generation health care, proper nutrition, quality daycare, it's going to set them up for success. They're going to be more likely to live out their potential and they're going to be less likely to suffer poor health outcomes that are socially expensive. And then the point about domestic preference in both voicemails, Rich mentioned some sort of domestic consumption preference that we should either make people buy things that are produced in America or or somehow other policies that would end the trade deficit. And again, I understood, and this has been argued to me from other people, but that running a trade deficit and allowing developing countries to develop their economies, and even better if you can throw in some empowerment for women – this is a great way to control population growth. In fact, that's the formula that all of the developed nations seem to have followed to really decrease their rates of population growth. So I'm not sure what the domestic preference legislation, how that weighs in, but again, I'm not sure how that relates to the child tax credit. And then I totally agree with Rich. I don't like any of his arguments, but yeah, the child tax credit isn't good policy. I don't like it. I think a universal basic income or an increase in wage or universal you know, jobs guarantee, these would all be better policy choices. And just in general, using the tax code to implement social policy is messy. It's imprecise and it's inefficient. Now, it's not as bad as like the mortgage interest deduction, which is a whole different thing I could yell about, but it's a tax credit. So it's a credit against taxes owed, right? And it it is refundable, but if you don't pay federal income taxes, you can't claim well you can so unless you're making at least fifty seven thousand dollars a year, you can't claim the full three hundred dollars. So all of those families less than $57,000, which is a third of the country, right? A third of the country. We're not really talking about $300 a month. We're talking about some smaller number. And if your kids are over six, it's $250 a month per child, but it is a refundable credit. So I guess partial point there. Uh, So if you're Income was only twenty five thousand dollars, and you didn't pay any federal income taxes. You'd still be able to get one hundred and sixteen dollars a month in child tax credit payments. But everyone talks about the three hundred, and if you do the math, and then you get one hundred and sixteen, uh, you know, it's like I, especially if I was in this mythical cohort where I needed three hundred dollars to be able to afford a kid. And I have a kid, and then I get a $116 check. I'm <laughs> like, oh, no. And that dwindles down to nothing at an income of $2,500. And if you don't have an income, obviously there's no Tax credit whatsoever, and again, that's not an insignificant number of people, right? So less than twenty-five thousand, between twenty-five and twelve, which are the folks that are going to get about one hundred and sixteen dollars. That's nine percent of the country, and less than twelve thousand income. That's still eight percent of the country are going to get proportionally less than one hundred sixteen, down to nothing. So this is a middle to upper class benefit. right? If you're making $100,000, $200,000, this is just great. This is fantastic. But if we're talking about the people that need the help the most, ah, the child tax credit just isn't that policy that's going to do that where a raise to the minimum wage, a universal basic income, a job guarantee, those all would directly target the blight of poverty it would it would actually do something good about that so boy rich i totally 100 agree with you i think your reasons are a little screwy but i'm on board let's not do the tax credit let's do something universal jay amanda everyone stay awesome thank you
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. Now, boy, did anyone else have the experience of the emotional roller coaster that I did during that voicemail? It is just not every day. You hear a message that is essentially, you sounded racist and illogical, but I agree with you entirely. That is just not usually how things go. So I want want to appreciate that for what it was and and the the rare opportunity we had to hear that. And, you know, Dave, he said so much, there's a lot that I could address, but I'm just going to let it mostly simmer as it is. What I do want to address, though, is the racism, because if we know anything about white people, it's that they do not like being called racist, and I imagine that uh, Rich is in that camp. So, I just wanted to address that topic and and make some clarifications. I think that Dave is entirely justified in associating conversations about population concern with racism, because historically— There is a massive link between those two. And people who talk about their concerns over population know that. Good, progressive, anti-racist people know that. They know that connection. And if they know what they're doing, they will take steps to studiously avoid that subject. However, even though just avoiding the subject isn't quite enough. It actually needs to be dealt with uh, head on. It's not entirely fair to hang the legacy of racism on the subject of population around the necks of modern-day people who are concerned about population but don't infuse their concerns with racism. Just as the Sierra Club was founded by anti-immigration racists who were against immigration for environmental reasons, they say, and Planned Parenthood was founded by eugenicists, we can support the modern environmental and reproductive justice movements without ourselves being accused of racism or eugenics or anything like that. Those organizations need to deal with the legacies that they have, but it is not the same to say that they are forever tainted by them. Same goes with the discussion on population. If your concerns are genuine and global and not at all related to race, then there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is, if you hear someone, as Dave did, who is concerned with population, get your racism radar ready. Because there's a really decent chance that you're about to hear some racism. So get ready for it. Maybe you'll hear it, maybe you won't. And if you yourself are concerned with population, do as they did on Saturday Night Live when addressing the Aziz Ansari story a few years back. Careful.
10: Well, let's come to this. I'll go first.
0: Are you sure you want to do
5: this?
10: Yes,
11: yes. I will speak on the topic of Aziz Ansari. I think...
7: Careful.
11: Yeah. I, I think that some women
1: careful, or, or rather, um, some
7: men have a proclivity. care
2: Help me.
0: So for Rich and anyone else in that camp concerned with population growth, that's fine. Just know that you're handling radioactive material and you should use protective equipment. That's all we're saying. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and Occasional bonus show co hosting, and thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referralmatic program at bestoftheleft.com slash refer. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.